Welcome to the ISO on the Gonzaga Nation Media Network. I'm your host, Dan Dickow. Today's special guest, as we go through the entire West Coast Conference, the newcomer on the block, head coach of the University of San Francisco, Chris Gerlifson. Chris, thanks for joining. Appreciate the time. No, thanks for having me on, Dan. Let's just jump right into it. University of San Francisco, you guys had a fantastic season under Todd Golden. I'm sure there was a lot of uh, talk about him being a young, hot coach on the block, and there may have been opportunities for you to follow him. There may have been other opportunities, but you've become the head coach of USF on a program on the rise. Tell us a little bit about kind of the circumstances uh, leading into you taking the job and the expectations and excitement you have. Yeah, no, it's been a uh, certainly a, a whirlwind uh, to this point, but, you know, I haven't even been here for a full year yet, you know, and, and to think that, you know, I'm now in the position to be the head coach is, is crazy to me. Um, Todd and I had conversations before I decided to join the staff last year, and we kind of joked about the possibility of this happening. And, and, you know, maybe we spoke it into existence, um, but, you know, we were, were fortunate enough to have a great year. Um, Todd is, you know, one of the brightest um, guys that I've been around in terms of like thinking outside the box. Obviously, you know, he's super analytical. Um, you know, we just had a, we had a phenomenal year, something that USF hasn't done in 24 years, having a chance to go to the NCAA tournament and things just fell into place. You know, he, uh, he had an opportunity, obviously presented itself at Florida, and um, I was fortunate enough for the administration and uh, the powers to be here at, at USF to, to trust me to lead the program going forward. Well, when any new coach takes over, they've got some things that kind of uh, maybe speak to them that they want to implement in their program. Um, but a lot of times, if they were involved, such as you were, there's also hallmarks that you want to carry on. I know Todd was very analytic driven. There was a lot of good actions on the offensive end of the floor as well. What are some of the things that you're going to kind of use as holdovers? And what are some of the changes that you're going to try to implement on both sides of the ball? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, from a first, I guess I'll start from an offensive standpoint. I feel like I had a, a big thumbprint on what we did because I, I did run the offense here. Uh, and, and did so at the last two stops I was at. So from an offensive standpoint, I think you'll see a lot of the same stuff. Um, there's a way that I believe in playing, um, and, and that won't change. Obviously, we'll tweak that depending on some of our personnel. Um, but, you know, Todd, as we mentioned already, was super analytically driven, uh, and I thought I was too before I got here, and then I got here, and I realized that I really wasn't. And uh, so... From a learning standpoint this past year, uh, my eyes got open to a, a lot of things in terms of how you, you know, view numbers and uh, how you schedule, how you view who you, who you play, how you sub. Um, and those will be things that I will continue to do um, because I saw the value in it this year, you know, and, and I think that was a big reason why we put ourselves in a position to be in that large team, you know, and so there's things that I've, I've picked up from him that Again, will continue to be hallmarks. Um, you know, Todd ran most of the defense. I think we will continue to do a lot of the same things, um, but I think we'll tweak it in some ways too, you know, and, and a lot of that, again, will be based on personnel. Um, but 
our, our system, our style of play wasn't broke here. So I'd be stupid if I, I jumped into it and said, we're just going to blow it up and change everything. Um, I think that would be foolish on my part. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll adjust and, and adapt and, and kind of develop our own brand. But, you know, a lot of the same things of why we were good this year will, will stay consistent. Yeah, I would agree with you in the comment about the style of play. It's a fun style of play. I would have loved to have played in a style like that where uh, lots of three-pointers are shot, the ball, the floor is spaced, and there's driving angles. But you guys had two guards last year that you could really rely on lean and lean upon creating opportunities for themselves or others. Jamari Bouye, um, you know, hopefully he gets a legitimate shot at the NBA because I think he's kind of one of those uh, hidden gems last year in college basketball. Khalil Shabazz, my understanding is in the transfer portal. Maybe you can kind of share a little bit more if that's still where he's at uh, or if he's done with his college eligibility. Um, but when you look at that fun style, what are the key emphasis points that you guys really like to teach or focus on? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll try to address all, all of it. So I firmly hope and pray that Jamari puts himself in a position to, to be drafted. I mean, he's had a couple workouts already this week. He's done really well with them. Uh, he was invited to the G League Combine in Chicago uh, in a week and a half, which would be a great opportunity for him to showcase himself. Um, and, and I agree with you. He was a, a hidden gem in, in college basketball. So we're, we're hoping that things work out, and I'm confident they will. Um, in regards to Khalil, he did en enter the transfer portal um, to see what his options are. I am uh, I'm confident that he will be a Don next year if everything uh, goes as planned. Um, and again, I think he's somebody who can kind of move out of Jamari's shadow now and have a chance to be kind of the face of the program, you know, going forward. But from a style of play component, you know, this being a, a great garden experience and success, um, you win with really good backcourt play, you know. And so from a style of play component, um, how we kind of approach it, you know, having people who can dribble fast and shoot and who have high IQs for the game um, is super important. Um, I believe in teaching guys how to play and then giving you a lot of structure, or I'm sorry, a lot of freedom um, to read and react. You know, we always talk about taking what the defense gives you. And the beauty of offense is no matter what a defense does, there's a way to, to attack it and, and, and make a read. So I'm big on teaching you how to play, not necessarily teaching you plays. And, and I think our guys you saw this year, Khalil and, and Jamari especially, had the freedom to really just be players, you know, and, and um, they were a big reason why we, we got to where we got to. Yeah, it was fun to watch. Lots of space on the floor, lots of pick and roll actions, lots of, uh, I believe you guys this season ago call it, called it came together actions where it's read and react. The defense adjusts one way, you back cut or maybe you curl cut and open up space for another teammate. It's really fun. So um, best of luck in getting Shabazz back on, on your roster. But when you look at him in the transfer portal and you look at all those other names in the transfer portal, that has to be priority number one for head coaches right now in college basketball is sifting through that. How much time, effort, energy, and maybe stress does the transfer portal put on you guys right now? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a daily grind, you know, that's, 
the first thing I look at in the morning when I get up is a portal. And it's the last thing I look at, you know, before I go to bed. And um, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, it's, it's kind of the world we're living in right now. So, um, you know, the people who adjust and really, as you said, sift through the hundreds of names that are in there and figure out guys who, you know, fit what you're about, fit your system, fit your style of play, uh, but are also going to fit as from a character standpoint. Um, you know, that's the fun part of it. You know, it's building your team. It's putting the pieces together. And, um, you know, our, our whole staff, it's a, a collective effort, you know, on a, on a daily basis. And, um, you know, we're, we're, again, we've signed two guys out of the transfer portal already. Um, and I anticipate us adding a couple more here, hopefully a couple here in the next couple of days. How much more appeal do you think USF has now that you guys had such a spectacular season? Uh, you made it to the NCAA tournament. There, there was great progress under Kyle Smith, and then Todd had things going, and you guys got to the tournament a season ago. Um, but have you seen an impact in interest from high school players that you're recruiting as well as guys in the portal? No, for sure. I mean, it's a great way to get in the door, you know, to be able to say that we're coming off in that large uh, birth to the NCAA. It's also great to say, hey, did you see the performance that Jamari Bouye put on, you know, on a national level, scoring 36 in an in a NCAA tournament game? When you're talking to guards in the transfer portal, you really just have to show them that and their eyes get big because they see the freedom that Jamari played with um, and, and how he operated, you know, on a national stage. So, yeah, it's, it's a great selling point. Um, but I think it's it's good for the entire league, right? I mean, I'm about making this league as good as it can be. And um, that's the exciting thing for me when you think about just from a, a, a bigger picture of how good we can make the WCC from, from top to bottom. And um, having three teams be able to play in March this year, I think is, is a, a step in the right direction. And that's something that we should be striving for from a, a league standpoint um on a yearly basis well let's stay on the wcc for a minute because yeah there were three teams in the league last year um you know you guys had a legitimate shot to win that first round game against murray state i, I think the ncaa did you guys a disservice in putting those two teams together in the first round but then gu made it to the sweet 16 uh and st mary's had a great first round win against uh university of indiana but when you look at the wcc and you see the lack of offseason movement outside of Gonzaga players declaring for the draft, I think it's poised for another great year. Um, what are your thoughts uh, overall on the league? And maybe lack of player movement is the best way to describe it. Yeah, no, I mean, um, it's funny because before I came out to the West Coast and had a chance to work at San Diego, I really didn't understand how good the league was. I didn't understand how good the, the coaching was from, from top to bottom. And um, even since coming to San Diego, I feel like it's just gotten even better, you know, from a coaching standpoint to a talent standpoint. Um, I feel like it's a league that is, is really a hidden gem. Um, and I'm excited for the league to get more showcase. Um, you know, I think you have some great young coaches. Obviously, Shante Ligon did a amazing job at Portland this past year. You have your veteran coaches, um, you know, with Herb Sendek, Santa, Santa Clara probably would have been in an NCAA tournament conversation had they not had the COVID shutdown. 
Um, Randy Bennett obviously is a juggernaut at, at St. Mary's and then obviously Fuey at, at Gonzaga, that all speaks for itself. Um, but it's just a league with, with really good up and coming young coaches mixed with, I think, a group of veteran guys who um, have won a lot of games. And, um, you know, every night is there's no easy outs, you know, in the WCC. And I, I think it's going to continue to get better. What's your recruiting pitch to, to players on the West Coast? Because I grew up on the West Coast in, in the late 90s. It was Pac-10, Pac-10. Right now, obviously, it's Pac-12. But um, you've seen a, a good shift, I think, in, in players looking for fit as opposed to the highest level league. What is your recruiting pitch to players when they get stuck on level of league as opposed to fit? Because I do think the WCC continues to improve. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I mean, you know, look at the records of, of the top teams in our league against the Pac-12, you know, and no disrespect to the Pac-12, but, you know, our league has had tremendous success against that level. Um, and we've beaten those teams, whether it's been home games or on the road or, or neutral site games. So I think we have um, some ammo, you know, in our weapons where we can say, hey, you know, look at these results. The results don't lie. You know, and, and I, I feel like us and, and other programs, we're not scared to play anyone anywhere, you know, and, and we want to challenge ourselves and put us in that um, those same sentences with with power five programs. And um, so I think but you're right, it's, it's something that you have to adjust to and address with recruits, because sometimes they do have the power five on on the brain and. Um, you know, St. Mary's, Gonzaga, BYU, ourselves, Santa Clara, you go down the line. I mean, we've fared pretty, pretty darn well against those power five teams. Sometimes scheduling can become an issue uh, for a league the, that's on the cusp of a true breakthrough like the WCC. You guys were very proactive last year. I love the kind of quick turnaround game that you guys put together with Loyola Chicago. What can we expect from USF with you in charge uh, with in regards to scheduling? Yeah, I mean, that that's probably one of the areas that I've learned the most about, you know, over the last year is how important the scheduling piece is to set yourself up for March, you know, and, and I think a big reason why we were in that large birth team was because of the way that we scheduled you know, and, and we're going to continue to, to kind of follow that same scheduling format um, of really challenging ourselves with, with tough non-conference games and games that when you look at from a resume perspective, um, where the, the committee can look at, you know, when it comes down to March and say that these are games and hopefully wins uh, that put you in the, in the conversation to be a tournament team. You've spent time as an interim head coach. You've spent time as an assistant coach. Um, where do the where does the kind of responsibilities lie in regards to figuring out who do we need to reach out to to schedule, and then figuring out how to go about getting that schedule? Because I've talked to a number of coaches over the years. Sometimes a, a head coach delegates it, and then they have final say. How does it work with with you and your program? Yeah, and and that's kind of how it was last year with Todd. You know, he had. Jonathan Sapphire, who, who is a, a, was a huge piece to what we did, um, especially from an analytical standpoint. Um, and we had another guy who was kind of learning from him, you know, while he was here. And, and that guy, fortunate enough for me, is still on staff, uh, Kevin Olson. 
So he's kind of moved into the scheduling uh, guru on our staff. And, and, you know, it's something that we talk about on a daily basis. Um, obviously, we'll have final say over what we do. Um, but we're, we're numbers driven, you know, and, and um, you know, we're going to look at all the numbers from a Kempom standpoint, from a Torvik standpoint, to make sure that, um, you know, we're looking at it with a clear lens. And, and again, the transfer portal throws a little bit of a wrench into it because it's kind of impossible to, to know exactly what rosters are going to look like, um, especially at this point. Um, but we're, we're trying to do our homework and, and be as diligent as we can in terms of examining rosters and uh, where we think teams will be from a number standpoint uh, heading into to next year. Matt Norlander at, at CBS Sports had a great article uh, in the last few days, and it was talking about scheduling. And there's a proposal out there, and I would imagine the WCC would be part of it. Um, in, in regards to helping programs and, and leagues that are not in the power five, figuring out ways to bolster their resume in, in mid February. Did you get a chance to see that article, read that article? What are your thoughts I, I did. on that racket buster type idea? I, I didn't. Um, I, I actually love it, you know, and, and I think if you think about the end of the year this year with some teams that missed games because of COVID, there was talks of basically doing the same kind of deal. You know, I think BYU was looking for a game at the end of the year to try to bolster their, their resume, um, you know, and, and so some of that was, I think, very similar to what Matt was talking about in his article. Um, but I think it would be a great way for, especially, as you said, like mid-major programs um, to put themselves in a better, uh, better light with the committee and have a chance to win some really meaningful games uh, coming down the stretch of the season. So I, I, I loved it. I thought it was a great article. Yeah, I, I hope it comes to fruition because, you know, with, with the, the games that I cover uh, as an analyst for college basketball, you kind of get to that February stretch and you're wanting that kind of unknown. You want to know a little bit more about those teams. And a lot of times it's your, your third, fourth, fifth place teams in some of those leagues that don't get the amount of coverage that the power five gets. And I think that would put a lot of those teams over the edge in regards to public perception, but also hopefully with the committee's eyes. No, I, I agree. Great way to, again, you know, have a chance to maybe showcase some WCC teams on a different, uh, on a different scale, say against, I don't know, a Missouri Valley team or, or, a Mountain West team, and, and I agree. Sometimes you're looking for those kind of marquee matchups where you can compare two teams um, as you come down the, the home stretch. And um, we saw a little bit of that, you know, having a chance to play Loyal Chicago. It wasn't at the end of the year, um, but when we played that game, we played it, you know, kind of knowing that we felt like we were both NCAA tournament teams and great way to showcase our program and their program. Uh, and kind of gauge where you're at too. Um, and that's a game that, although we lost, I think it, it told us a lot about ourselves um, going forward. NIL is a huge topic right now. And I've always said from the start that I think college players, my personal opinion, college players should be paid, but I thought it was gonna take two or three years to kind of flush the system out and figure out the correct way to do it. Um, how does San Francisco stay relevant in regards to NIL, because you live in a technology area that provides a lot of opportunities. I know you as a coach can't broker the deals, 
but you guys have to be aware of what's out there. Am I right? No, for sure. And, and, you know, obviously when I came into the position of head coach, there's a million things that you need to do and, and um, a lot of boxes that you need to check. But, you know, one of the things at the top of my list was becoming as educated as I could, you know, on the NIL. Um, and I agree with you, the schools that figure it out the fastest and have a plan in place, um, whether it's from a donor standpoint, alumni standpoint, those are the schools that are going to have the chance um, to really stay relevant, as you said. Um, and so that's something that we've spent a lot of time on as a staff talking about, um, talking to the right donors, making sure that um, our guys are going to have opportunities in, in San Francisco, obviously being a tech capital and, and having, I think, like 16 percent of the world's billionaires are here in the city. Um, so there's a lot of resources here that other places don't have. So um, we spent a lot of time on it. Obviously, coaches need to be hands off in terms, as you said, setting the deals up. But uh, we are trying to educate ourselves and our kids. And I feel like this will be a place that we can uh, stay competitive, you know, and, and give ourselves the best opportunity to attract the right kind of players to continue to win games. Well, the, the checklist for a, a head coach, especially in year one, is lengthy. You, you touched on having to wanting to kind of learn as much as you could about NIL. We've talked about scheduling, but you also have to put together a staff, especially when, you know, Todd heads to Florida. And, and I would imagine some of the guys on the staff went with him. Um, so you have to fill your own staff. You picked one great guy in particular. I know he's a former Zag. He's a friend of mine, a college roommate in college Bankhead. But when you're forming your staff uh, as a as a head coach, what do you look for? And then and how do you kind of complement all the strengths of those guys when, when you form it? Well, yes, Kyle, Kyle is a phenomenal, uh, first off, phenomenal human, uh, but a tremendous coach. And um, the, the biggest thing for me, and I, I've thought about this for, you know, a long time, was hoping that the day would come where I become a head coach. Uh, and I always thought about what would be important to me from a staff component. And, um, you know, one thing that never changed was in my first staff, I wanted to hire guys that I knew. You know, I wanted to have guys on staff who I trusted, who I knew on a personal basis, um, because it was so important to me to, to have guys as a kind of step into a new role who I could trust. Uh, and I knew what they were about as humans first. Um, and so that kind of eliminated a lot of the people who came out of the woodwork, you know, when you first get a job, because I, I didn't, maybe I had brief personal relationships from a, a professional standpoint, but really didn't know a lot of the people who were reaching out to me. Um, and so I, I always had in my brain, you know, a select list of, of guys who I would want to talk to if I was fortunate enough to be a head coach. And um, Kyle was always a guy who I really respected from afar. Um, and Jay Duncan, who we were fortunate enough to get from SMU, the same, same thing. So there were guys that um, I knew what they were about, you know, and I knew that, that the way they kind of viewed the game, how they were with kids and interacted with players, I just knew that it would be a really good fit for me. Um, and there wouldn't have to be a whole lot of feeling out process, you know, getting to know guys as they come into a, a new job. So that was the biggest thing for me, um, was just getting guys that I knew and that I trusted 
and I knew what they were about, you know, as coaches, but as people too. How many, how, how many potential coaches reached out to you um, when you took over the head coaching position? Cause I've always been fascinated with that. You know, at one point I thought I was going to go down the coaching path, the coaching career, um, and I was putting those same thoughts together as far as what would I do with forming a staff. Um, but how many people reached out to you for the couple positions you had available? Uh, I mean, I think within the, the first week I had 1,200 text messages, phone calls, and, um, you know, from, from largely from a lot of people that I did not have relationships with. And, um, you know, the one thing I think, having a chance to be an assistant for 24 years before the, having this opportunity is, you know, there's times as an assistant where you try to get involved with jobs and reach out. And um, it was always, you know, frustrating at times where you didn't get feedback. And, and I think sometimes as an assistant, as you're trying to climb the ladder, you just kind of want to know what the score of the game is, right? Like, hey, either I have a chance or I don't. So it was so important to me um, to just treat people the right way and get back to literally everyone who reached out. And, um, you know, I can say that I, that I have done that and I feel good about that, at least letting people know where they stand, um, you know, and, and, and hopefully some of the people who reach out are people now that I can establish stronger and, and meaningful relationships with. That's unbelievable. 1,200 close to 1200 people reaching out and and I can imagine for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it kind of shows any of our listeners out there just how, uh, how much people want to get into the business of coaching college basketball and how difficult it is and, and how selective programs are when they put together a staff and for, for you to be a head coach, at a prestigious basketball school like USF and then the staff to be put together. It's unbelievably well thought out. And I think the average fan uh, doesn't understand just how much thought is put into every aspect of a program. No, I mean, spot on. Um, you know, it's, it's humbling actually to, to think about it, right? Because at one time I was that guy, like just itching to get in and you just really, all you wanted was an opportunity and, for me, it was never about, you know, making money or anything. I just wanted to coach college basketball and, and have a chance to, you know, help impact kids' lives. And, and um, so I respect everyone who was kind of in those same position as, as I was at one point. And, um, you know, whatever I can do to kind of push the envelope forward and, and help some of the younger guys in the profession, and uh, I'm always going to try to do that. Well, Coach, we really appreciate your time. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best of luck uh, on the hilltop at San Francisco. I love what you guys did last year. I look forward to seeing the progress in your first year and continuing to help the WCC become a premier basketball conference in the country. So thanks again for joining the ISO. No, I appreciate you having me on. All the respect for what you do. So thank you.